Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. Julie, are you a fan of the nap? Mm, I love the idea of a nap, but I never really get to engage. Ah, okay. I, I, I love a nap. I do not take one every day. But when I do take one, it is, uh, uh, it's phenomenal. And I, and I ask myself, why do I not do this all the time? Why don't I, why don't I grab a quick 20 minute nap every day? The, the time that I really want a nap is on a plane. Mm-hmm. Because I have the time to do it, makes right. total sense. But I'm just incapable of doing that. And I know some of it's because the vestibular system is keeping tabs on what's going on. You know, yeah. you've got all sorts of sensory information that the brain has to deal with. And so it's a little bit occupied or too occupied in order for you to, you know, fall into some sort of slumber. And yet people do it all around me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I appreciate a good long, uh, Airplane nap. I, I also like a good car nap. I haven't taken one in a while, but when I was working in newspapers, I remember coming, uh, sneaking back out. Well, not sneaking. I would take a break outside, and I would think, well, if people can take smoke, smoke, smoke breaks, I can take a nice nap break. So I just go into the car, you lean the chair back, and you just uh, doze off for a good uh, 20 minutes. And, you know, this is not a weird concept. You know the concept of the siesta, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, this is Latin for Hora sexta, or rather it comes from Latin. And hora sexta means the sixth hour, because traditionally the day would start at 6 a.m., and six hours later would be noon, perfect time for a siesta. Hmm. You know, and I mean, because at heart, what is a nap but sleep? Just a little extra sleep. And sleep is good, even though we tend to have this sort of uh, uh, hostile relationship with, with it, especially uh, here in the States, right? Like sleep is that period of time when you can't get anything done. Why would I have more sleep during the day? That's time I could be doing things. Yeah, think of the T-shirt, I'll sleep when I die. Yeah. You've probably seen that around. Oh, yeah, yeah. Sleep when I'm dead. There was a Warren Zevon song about that. But sleep, just to refresh, uh, does a number of great essential things for us. And we've podcasted about this before. I'll be sure to in- include some links to our, our whole suite of, uh, of sleep-related content on the landing page for this episode. But sleep gives the body a chance to repair muscles and other tissue, uh, replaces aging or dead cells. It gives the brain a chance to organize and archive memories. And uh, sleep lowers our energy consumption, uh, allows us to, to recharge the body and the brain, keeps us around to eat all the time, gets to just sort of shut things down for a little bit. And, you know, all life forms have these built-in chemical clocks that are gauging the amount of light out there mm-hmm. and how to respond to it, right? And the human pineal gland, well, it regulates the rhythm that beats out this biological clock for us, secreting melatonin according to light stimulus. And uh, you can kind of think of it as this control tower cueing us as to when we should fall into a slumber. And when we do fall into a slumber... There are four key stages, okay? And this is going to be important uh, later on in the episode. Uh, stage one, five to ten minutes. First five to ten minutes of your sleep, this is a light sleep. This is basically waking to sleeping transition period. The second stage sees your heart and your body, your heart rate and your body temperatures drop because that kind of readies yourself for deep sleep. Right, yeah, stage two, 20 minutes, and this is when your brain is producing a burst of rapid rhythmic brain wave activity known as as sleep spindles. And uh, these play an important role in memory consolidation, which we'll discuss in a bit. 
Then you have uh, stage three. This is the delta sleep or slow wave sleep. Uh, this is a, a deep area of sleep where you have slow brain waves known as the known as delta waves that are beginning to emerge. Yeah, this is uh, the time where your body repairs and regrows tissues, builds bones and muscles, and strengthens the immune system. So this specifically, your body is really doing some work in this stage. And so it makes sense that if you um, are awoken in this stage, that you feel exceedingly groggy and mm-hmm. in a fog. Yeah. And then finally, there's stage four, and this is uh, 90 minutes after falling asleep, generally. This is uh, REM sleep. This is the domain of dreams. I always think about the first three stages as just being these portals into the inner chamber yeah. of dreamland, right? Because yeah. that's sort of the ultimate goal, at least in my mind, because this is where stuff really happens and memory consolidation becomes important here. Yeah, I mean, to channel uh, Ralph Wiggum, this is where you're a Viking, right? Uh, now, the progression of these stages is interesting because you would think it would just be one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, or what have you. But the progression goes stage one, then stage two, then you get to stage three. Then back to stage two, then to stage four, then back to stage two, and then it continues. Yeah, and the more you revisit the REM stage, the longer lengths of time. So it could be like 10 minutes that you're in REM the first time, and then Mm -hmm. throughout the evening or the night, um, it could extend out toward an hour. Cool. So that's the basic flow of a given night's sleep. So it's important to keep that in mind when we start talking about naps, the little uh, slices of additional sleep that we uh, carve out for ourselves during the day. And I do want to uh, drive home that in this podcast, we're, we're going to be dealing with adult napping uh, without diving into the much research topic of infant and toddler napping, which is a, a domain all to all on its own. Although I will say the parallel here is that a good nap can solve almost any sort of crisis in either an adult or a child. <laughs> it's true. All right. Let's get to know the nap. Um focusing on the length and the sleep stages involved here. First of all, you have your 20-minute power nap. This is the this is this is a good one to have in your arsenal. Uh, it yields mostly stage 2 sleep. So you're just dipping your toes into the waters of uh, of slumber here. Uh, but still, according to uh, Jennifer Ackerman, author of Sex, Sleep, Eat, Drink, Dream, A Day in the Life of Your Body, that's still enough to enhance alertness and concentration, to elevate mood and sharpen your motor skills. Plus, you know, especially in this modern day where we, we're so focused on clock time and we think about those those hour and half hour blocks that we've carved up our time into, it's easier to get on board with a 20 minute nap because like that's not even half an hour. That's that's just a third of an hour. So if I just allow myself that, then I'm not really cutting in to the rest of my day. Yeah, and if you're trying to be super efficient about that 20 minutes, you want to get everything you can out of it, well, you may want to consider pairing it with caffeine, which I know sounds really (laughs) counterintuitive, but it's actually possible to hack your nap a bit with caffeine. Um, So let's, let's talk about that. You see, your body produces a molecule called adenosine. And this adenosine will slow down nerve cell activity. And when it builds up a bit in your brain, well, that's when you really begin to feel a bit um, like you're kind of slogging through the day. Okay. So caffeine games adenosine by doing this. It binds to the receptors that adenosine would normally bind So if you introduce caffeine, it will kind of sidle up to that receptor before the adenosine does, Mm -hmm. bind to it and say, ah, alert, awake. (laughs) Um, So in a sense, they're competing for those receptors. So here's where sleep or a nap comes into it. While you're napping, 
the adenosine is being broken down by your brain and ferried away, which means all those receptors are free. And so if you're taking a 20-minute nap, that actually happens to correspond with the peak effects of caffeine. So what that means is that, you know, your brain has cleared away all the adenosine, and now at the end of those 20 minutes, the peak effects of caffeine are taking effect and all binding to those free receptors. You wake up feeling spectacular, like you've had eight hours of nonstop sleep. Nice. Yeah. A little sleep ha- hacking there. So that's that's, that's, an- that's the idea behind yeah. it. <laughs> now, um, a, a lot of you are probably already aware of like the ideal 20-minute nap, and maybe many of you try the coffee trick as well. But obviously, sometimes you hit that 20-minute mark, your your alarm goes off, and you just feel like maybe maybe you just need a little more, right? Five more minutes, 10 more minutes, 15 more minutes, right? But you you need to be careful here because if you choose to go too much longer, if you go past the 45-minute mark, uh, then you risk getting beyond sleep phases one and two and into three. So if you and if you go longer, you get into phase three, you get into that slow wave or delta wave sleep. This is that area, again, where waking out of this, you're going to get groggy and uh, you're going to have that sleep inertia. You're going to be disoriented, and that can last for a good half hour. So as... As tantalizing and and uh, and appealing as the idea of just an, an, a solid hour nap might seem, especially during the you know again thinking of clock time, thinking of all right, well I'll just take one whole hour and just recharge. If you do that, then you're risk taking an, an additional half hour just to recover from your nap. Right, because it never feels good to wake up from a nap and try to remember what your name is and where you are. And it's just a terrible sort of mucking through feeling. So if you go past that 45 minutes, you might as well go to 90 minutes because that means that you now have covered an entire cycle of sleep that includes the coveted entry into the REM realm, uh. which... As we know in, in uh, other podcasts that we have or episodes that we've covered can aid creativity and emotional and procedural memory, such as learning how to ride a bike, for instance. So this is really helpful, this 90-minute nap, if you have learned a new task and you want to try to consolidate that memory faster and, and make it stickier. Take that 90 minutes. The whole, let's, the whole, well, maybe I should sleep on it thing, right? Yeah. Yeah. And this allows you to essentially sleep on it in small form. I wanted to point this little statistic out. Unlike 85% of all mammalian species, humans sleep just once a day, which is bunk when you consider that the human brain uses more energy than any other organ in the body. I'm talking about 20%. Um, you know those maps showing uh, the world's energy consumption. Mm-hmm. The brain is kind of like the United States, <laughs> you know, along with China. It really is taking up a lot of energy. So what can a nap do for you? Well, it can help reverse any nighttime sleep deficits, boost our brains, including improvements to creative problem solving, verbal men- memory, perceptual learning, object learning, and statistical learning. Um, it's generally good for about everything, including managing weight. So, for instance, um, think about leptin and ghrelin. 
These are two hormones that help to maintain your appetite. Um, they both suppress it and they ramp it up during the day and night. And if you don't get enough shut-eye, you'll have too much leptin in the system slowing down your metabolism and too much ghrelin in the system telling you that you're hungry. And that's why if you've ever pulled an all-nighter, the next day you just have the insatiable <laughs> munchies because these hormones are completely off. And so a nap can actually help to to balance out those hormones again. And then in terms of alertness, we can look at this study from NASA. It's titled Alertness Management Strategic Naps in Operational Settings, and it's from 1995. And they looked at the beneficial effects of napping on 747 pilots, and each participant was allowed to nap for 40 minutes during the day, sleeping on average about 25.8 minutes, which is kind of the sweet zone of uh, napping, as we've discussed. And the nappers, quote, demonstrated vigilance performance improvements from 16% in median reaction time to 34% in lapses compared to the no rest group. So that would lead us to this idea of performance in the workplace and knowing that a nap can actually restore our attention. It can increase the quality of our work. Um, can help our attention spans, reduce our mistakes, and it can also help us to learn while we're on the job. And yet, yet, not all of us have um, the kind of corporate culture that has installed sleep pods or sleep tents. Yeah, um, we were talking about this earlier uh, before the podcast. You, there was a time at How Stuff Works where it was in the rule book that if you if you were asleep, in the office, you could be fired, like, I assume, on the spot and just kicked out like half awake. If you were asleep yeah. at your desk, which made me think of Alana from Broad City, oh, yes. the Comedy Central oh, yes. series, in which she has trained herself to sleep uh, sitting in her chair at work with her eyes open. Ah, yeah. It's beautiful. It's a, it's a brilliant, it's a brilliant uh, strategy and one that I've seen in real life. When I was in high school, uh, there was... Um, there's a guy in my class named Tojo, and uh, he was uh, he was on the, the football team, big guy, uh, but not as interested in his studies. And he could fall asleep with his eyes open. He perfected it for the classroom use, where he would just sit there, his eyes are open, and he's dead asleep. And maybe, maybe he's absorbing some of this, right? Maybe so. you know, some yeah. of the material that he's listening to. Yeah, I, I judged him too harshly. Um, because uh, even a short sleep lasting 45 to 60 minutes uh, in that range can produce a five-fold improvement in information retrieval from memory. Now, this, these findings come from a 2015 neuropsychology study from Germany, Saarland University, by Sarah Studa, Axel Mecklinger, and Emma Bridger. Now, specifically, they were interested in the consolidation of memories during stage two sleep. Uh, this is when information is tagged for easier recall. You can think of, you know, the sleep librarians going through the archives and tagging things individually and putting things in order to where they'll be of more use uh, to the waking mind. And they focused on the hippocampus here. Uh, this is where the memories are consolidated. Uh, and they looked for those telltale sleep spindles uh, that we mentioned earlier that are in stage two sleep uh, while they were analyzing brain activity of, of test subjects via an electroencephalogram, or EEG. The more sleep spindles, the stronger the memory. So this particular study... Uh, unraveled like this. Uh, step one, test subjects were required to learn 90 single words and 120 word pairs. And these word pairs were just meaningless combinations of words, so they weren't phrases or anything. It was the kind of thing you'd have to really sort of turn on your brain to uh, absorb. 
The next step, one group was allowed to nap after uh, being presented with this information uh, around 90 minutes, uh, while the other watched some DVDs. In other words, to stay awake and not get a chance to nap and to consolidate those memories. Now, the test subjects then took tests that targeted both hippocampus-dependent associated memories, or AM, and hippocampus-independent item memories, or IM. Their findings were that IM performance decreased for both groups, but AM performance, that type of memory consolidation is occurring during sleep, decreased for the control group, the ones watching the DVDs, but remained uh, constant for the nap group. So this was consistent with their predictions uh, that uh, there would be this uh, selective impact of napping on hippocampus-dependent recognition. All right, when it comes to memory boosting and uh, napping, dreams certainly play a big part. And Robert Stickgold of Harvard Med School conducted a dream and memory experiment, uh, published the results in the 2010 online edition of Current Biology. And what they did is they took 99 college students who spent an hour practicing a virtual maze task on a computer with the goal of remembering the placement of a certain tree. Now, then they had students... Uh, who were assigned to either take a nap or just kind of hang out doing something really nice and quiet. Okay. Not necessarily meditative, but something that didn't um, take up too much of their brain reserves and allow them to kind of just hang out and um, restore their energy. So those who actively dreamed about the experimental task, we're talking about four people out of 50 nappers, found the tree much faster than they had in the initial trials. And they described seeing people at particular locations in the maze or hearing music that had played in the lab during testing. And this reminds me of a study that we've talked about before that essentially concluded that students who were studying in multiple places did better on their tests because they were creating more associations that their brain could later recall in a testing situation, Mm -hmm. right? So they were kind of creating the different data points. And what this is bearing out, and again, this is only four of the 50 nappers that actually dreamed, but it's bearing out that those data points are being revisited in these uh, dream scenarios. So in other words, it's not that the, the dreams led to better memory, but rather that they're a sign that other unconscious parts of the brain are, are really working hard to remember how to get through that virtual maze and those points of recall. Cool. Now, we mentioned earlier that uh, taking a, a nap can actually reverse the effects of a bad night's sleep or you know, a, a night of staying up and uh, cramming for a test or what have you. Uh, and so uh, there's actually a study that uh, proves this out rather nicely. According to a 2015 study published in the uh, Endocrine Society's Journal of Clinical Endocrinology and Metabolism, a short nap, 30-minute range, can help relieve stress and bolster the immune system after a night of sparse sleep, such as only scoring two hours. Uh, and this is key news since, according to the National Health Interview Survey, nearly three in ten adults report they sleep an average of six hours or less a night. So a lot of us are rolling through our daily lives with al- always having to deal with a little bit of a sleep deficit, right? So this particular study revol- revolved around 11 healthy men between the ages of 25 and 32. And during one session, uh, they were limited to two hours of sleep for a single night. And in another, subjects were able to take two 30-minute naps the day after uh, their sleep was restricted to two hours. Then 
the uh, scientists analyzed the participants' urine and saliva to determine how restricted sleep and napping had altered their hormone levels. So this is where it gets really interesting. They found that one night of limited sleep caused a 2.5-fold increase in the level of norepinephrine, a hormone and neurotransmitter involved in the body's fight-or-flight response to stress. So in other words, you have a bad night's sleep, then the next day, you're more likely to want to, uh, you know, fight or run from anything that that comes at you. You have this more of a, you know, um, uh, antagonistic uh, uh, relationship with your environment. Um, however, researchers found no change in norepinephrine levels when the men had napped following a night of limited sleep. So again, just just uh, just some short napping thrown in there can uh, can remove this. Uh, this battle the tiger or run from the tiger approach to something as simple as a, a day of taking tests on campus or uh, a day of work in the office. So it's interesting that that chemical clock that we talked about can get off so very easily mm-hmm. and that cascading effect can be created. But it sounds like it can invert that relationship. Indeed. So another thing that can be affected by sleep or napping is your blood pressure. So think about your old ticker there working really hard all day pumping blood to and fro. And when your head hits the pillow, your heart gets a rest too because there's less demand to pump blood throughout your body. But if you have this sort of chronic loss of sleep or sleep deficit, it means that your heart muscles can become fatigued and this can lead to an increase in blood pressure or possible thickening of the heart muscles. So how does the nap figure in here? Researchers at Liverpool John Moores University in the UK tested nine healthy volunteers, eight men, one woman, who did not routinely take afternoon naps. They wore equipment that checked blood pressure, heart rate, and forearm cutaneous vascular conductance, which is just determining the dilation of blood vessels. And they found a significant drop in blood pressure during the sleep trial. Okay, They also had a resting and standing trial. So what's more here is that this drop in blood pressure occurred mostly after the lights out moment, just before the volunteers fell asleep. And this is a kind of fascinating insight into mind-body that the researchers stumbled upon because it's just this kind of mere anticipation of an afternoon nap um, in which the body then followed suit and decreased blood pressure. So what I'm saying here is that they didn't even have to complete the nap just just by virtue of laying down and, and uh, starting to float into that first stage, they could feel the effects of a nap on their blood pressure. Huh, just wanting the nap, just giving in to the nap was enough. Yeah, I mean, you have to be in the the right context, right, or the right situation. Mm-hmm. Again, you can't be sitting up and thinking, wow, I, I'd love a nap right now, and then all of a sudden <laughs> your blood pressure is decreased. Um, but what it's saying is that the body knows that it's preparing itself for sleep, and it's it's uh, beginning to take the body down to the studs there. And so, again, you don't even have to enter into this the full phases. All right, so at this point, we might be wondering, well, is there any downside? All of this sounds just fantastic, right? I mean, we're boosting our memory, we're restoring our energy, we're, we're improving our mood, we're helping our bodies stay alive. Like, what possible downside could there be to taking a nap? Well, there does seem to be some degree of association 
uh, between uh, between naps and increased uh, diabetes risk. Now, this is come. This, there are two studies: a 2010 study and 2013 study. Uh, both were published in the journal Sleep, and uh, these studies looked at Chinese uh, participants uh, who reported taking naps four to six times a week. And in the first study, they found that the individuals were 50% more likely to have diabetes than those who napped less frequently. Now, both of these studies took place in China, where um, where, the, where the culture is generally more on board with a good nap uh, for anybody and everybody, regardless of age or, or status, uh, than you would find in uh, in many Western cultures. Um, now, the 2013 study followed up the the and con- more or less confirmed this correlation, but also suggested that while longer nap durations were associated with an increased risk for high blood sugar and diabetes, people who took short naps of say less than 30 minutes tended to have lower blood sugar levels compared to non-nappers. Uh, however, this wasn't like a really statistically significant link. What it all means, though, is that. Um, these findings can't really prove out into cause and effect. It's still a matter of correlation. Uh, but there is this possibility that napping and diabetes are connected. Now, remember, diabetes is a condition in which the individual experiences high blood sugar because the body doesn't produce enough insulin to remove excess glucose from the blood or because the cells have become resistant to insulin. So there's this possibility here, and it's, again, this needs to be proven out in, uh, in additional studies, uh, but it's possible that too much or too little sleep upsets the balance. Again, think of that uh, uh, the the biological clock that we've been talking about here interferes with our internal clockwork of insulin release, upsetting the balance and leading to the, uh, the to the to the lack of balance found found in the diabetic. Okay, that kind of chemical cascade. Yeah, indeed, a chemical cascade effect. Now, another study here about napping shows that it may be more efficient in the young. Um, this is according to a study published in the 2009 December issue of the journal Sleep. Patricia Segaspe studied 24 people, 12 young people between the ages of 20 and 25, and 12 middle-aged people between the ages of 40 and 50. Now, participants first drove 125 highway miles in the daylight between 6 and 7.30 at night, Okay, Okay. which which you might feel a little bit fatigued at that time, right? Then, in a test of the effects of coffee and napping on nighttime driving, participants drove another 125 miles between 2 a.m. and 3.30 a.m. after having a cup of coffee with 200 milligrams of coffee or a placebo, um, which was a cup of decaffeinated coffee, or a 30-minute nap. And what they wanted to look at, the researchers, they wanted to look at the inappropriate line crossings, self-perceived fatigue and sleepiness, um, just to try to figure out how this nap, how this caffeine was affecting the participants. And they showed that the napping led in the younger subset here led to fewer inappropriate line crossings than the middle aged participants. And during napping, young participants slept more and had more delta sleep than middle aged participants. And what is this pointing to? It's not that, um, Young people should nap more, <laughs> although go for it if they want. Um, but it's pointing to the fact that as you get older, it's harder to drop into a sleep state and it's harder to stay in it and, and be more engaged in it. 
So it's another one of those like youth is wasted on the youth. <laughs> <laughs> they can nap the best, and yet they're probably not napping so much. Now, finally, uh, one more study I want to mention here is a study that came out in 2014 that was published in the American Journal of Epidemiology, and it found a correlation between a daytime napping and increased mortality risk among 16,000 British men and women surveyed. Uh, specifically, they found that daytime nappers were nearly a third more likely to die before they turned 65. Now, this led to a lot of headlines making the rounds. Um, uh, naps linked to death. Naps linked to uh, increased uh, mortality rates, etc., which makes it sound like naps are killing people. If you nap too much, then you you are going to die. But uh, but really what this all boiled down to is that excessive daytime napping might be a useful marker of underlying health risk, uh, particularly uh, respiratory problems um, in people that are 65 years of, of age or younger. So the fact that you're sleeping a little extra, you're taking a, a, you know, more naps, maybe long naps every day, that in and of itself is not the problem, but it might uh, be a sign of other existing health concerns that will ultimately cut your life short. Okay, so to be clear, we're not talking about the quick 20-minute nap here. We're talking about excessive napping and perhaps even sleeping through the afternoon, which uh, besides being associated with maybe some underlying health conditions could also be associated with... um, Depression, as we know, yeah. that that's one of the red flags. Yeah, I instantly think of depression, and then also, um, you know, individuals are say bedridden with some uh, sort of condition or injury, right? I mean, obviously, that's the reason you're in bed. That's the reason you're 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 napping excessively, uh, and that may be the thing that's going to impact your health. And also, you would have, uh, you know, a more sedentary situation for your body as well, right? Indeed, so, which could spiral into other effects. Still, when you get down to it, I feel like the the pros uh, really went out against the cons here when it comes to napping. Especially if you can nap in a hammock rather than a bed. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, sure. This is this is scientifically proven. Uh huh. Because it turns out that hammocks are just adult-sized rocking cradles, mm. and uh, this this was uh, from a 2011 study from the issue of Current Biology, in which 12 participants slept in an experimental hammock. <laughs> And the researchers found that the rocking increased the duration of stage N2 sleep. This is that form of non-rapid eye movement sleep that normally occupies about half of a good night's sleep. So it's quality sleep. And this rocking configuration of a bed hammock also had lasting effects on brain activity, increasing slow oscillations and bursts of activity known as, we, as we mentioned before, sleep spindles. Huh. So, uh, yeah, get thee to a hammock. That that sounds like the way to go then. So based on what we've discussed here, the idea is you need to take that that nap. You need to refresh your mind and body. You want to drink some coffee, set your alarm for 20 minutes, Mm -hmm. and then throw yourself in a hammock. Ideal. Ideal. Yeah. Okay. With a little Enya in the background, maybe. (laughs) I don't know about that, actually. Yeah, go for it. It's soothing. I used to listen to Enya all the time. Now, if you don't have time for that... You could consider blinking as a kind of extreme <laughs> micro nap. That that sounds made up uh, right there. That well, sounds like something okay, I would see right. in a program. Like, I don't take naps. I just blink a lot, and then that takes care of the problem. Well, okay, well there's this idea. Okay. There's this idea. It, researchers were onto something here. They were like, ah, the amount of blinking that goes on 
you know, for the average person mm-hmm. is way too much for like clearing debris away. Okay? Uh, okay. We we blink far more than is actually necessary. So what they did is they began to look at how people blink throughout the day. And by the way, this is in a 2012 paper published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. And uh, they found that people tend to blink at predictable moments. So when you're reading, mm-hmm. when you get to the end of a sentence, you will typically blink. If someone is speaking, you may blink when the speaker pauses between statements. And if a group of people are all watching the same video, everyone tends to blink at the moment when the action briefly lags. And so the idea here is that 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 brief shuttering of the the eyes, uh, the window shades there, that refreshes the brain and it momentarily stems the flow of stimuli. Huh. And I was thinking about this because you we, we do videos, right? And um, when we first started doing these videos, we didn't have a teleprompter, which meant that you'd have to write the script, right? You mm-hmm. do your research, write your script. And then 10 minutes later, you would commit the stuff to your memory. And I noticed that I was blinking like mad. Hmm. And I, I do think some of that has to do with recall. We use a teleprompter now, and so there's less blinking. Uh, I think you're right. I think that, because I definitely remember uh, yeah, blinking more during those. And and certainly I'd, I'd have to look back and look at some of the, the videos we do that uh, and that don't use a teleprompter and see if there I can see a difference between my my blinking in uh, say an epic science versus uh, a monster science. Huh. Yeah, and uh, yeah, that I just noticed at one point that I was like, gosh, my eyes are just fluttering like <laughs> mad. I look like there's I've got some sort of blinking disorder. We what we should have done is just kept with that strategy and have uh, Tyler put like little blue circles over our eyes. Or green ones, and then you can just use CGI later to just keep our eyes open, just non-blinking. That wouldn't be creepy. No, not at all. No. All right. All right. There you go. Sleep and the nap. Uh, you know, let's call over our uh, let's call our robot out of its uh, unnatural slumber and see if we have a little listener mail. All right, this one comes to us from Nevin. Uh, Nevin writes in and says, uh, Hi, guys. I hope that you are both doing well. It seems like an awfully long time since I had the opportunity to enjoy having breakfast with both of you at the Majestic. I miss that place. Anyway, a student who minored in sociology, I really enjoyed the Mean World Syndrome podcast. I don't watch a lot of television, but when you look at movie uh, billings, it often seems to me as if the movies which have a tendency to violence are the ones that get top billing. More complex movies, uh, which one often which are often more realistic or actual real, or actual real life, uh, don't tend to feature as much. Is this because actual real life is seen as boring, that if we look too closely, we will be saddened by what we see? I don't know, but I think this is worth thinking about. As an example of mean world syndrome, I stayed in Harlem in New York City once. I was warned by all uh, and sundry to be extremely careful there. It was dangerous. There was a big chance I'd be mugged, etc., etc. Had any of the people saying this actually been there? No, they only knew it from television. All the best to you both, Nevin. Uh, I should explain that Nevin is from Ireland. He's from Cork, and uh, he is uh, a listener of ours. And we had breakfast with, with him one day at the Majestic, which is this great breakfast place here in Atlanta. And uh, it was so great talking to Nevin. We, he just has all these amazing insights. So, uh, you know, yet again, here we have something that he's bringing up from Mean World and um and I thought that was really interesting because, again, he's he's coming to Harlem as someone who's not just um, 
someone from the United States visiting there from a different state, but mm-hmm. from a different country. And yeah. I thought, yeah, that's the expectations are really outsized. Yeah. And I think he, he has a point there. I mean, people go to, to see movies for the most part. They want the drama. They want the conflict. Right. And so what kind of a world gives you more drama and conflict, the mean world or the uh, the the less mean ro- world of reality? Which also brought to mind, and I wrote back to Nevin about this, is that I think one of the reasons why Game of Thrones uh, does those big narrative dumps during a sex scene is because they know that people aren't going to be interested in the sort of um, plot points that have to be put out there, the sort of more dry narrative. So Uh they face it with something that uh, really lends to a sort of escapist moment, shall we say? Yeah. In the the books, most of those moments were... Well, involve food, characters eating, like a big banquet, and lots of descriptions of the food, and then uh, all these plot t- details were thrown out. Well, I would say that the uh, the series has also tapped into a kind of pleasure-reward system there. Indeed. All right, so there you have it. Uh, hey, in the meantime, if you want to listen to past episodes, check out blog posts, videos, etc., go to StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That is the mothership. That is the homepage. And if you have any thoughts, please do send them our way. You can email us at BelowTheMind at HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 